Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a great deal to offer in the modern world. 
Is Article 50 revocable? Parliament triggered the process at the beginning of the year, but last week the deadline to conclude the first phase of negotiations with the EU was missed. With one third of the two-year period already gone, is it possible to delay or reverse the decision? I'm Connor Pope and I'll be discussing all of that with Wirral South MP and Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Progress Director Richard Angel and Labour Peer Roger Liddell. The silencing of Big Ben is not even half of it. Last week, a chunk of stone fell off one of the parliamentary buildings and shattered a car windscreen, reminding us all of just how much renovation work needs doing in Westminster. The cost of doing it in stages and keeping MPs in the Houses of Parliament in the meantime is far greater than moving politicians out so renovations can happen in one go. But is it worth it? And where would it move to? Alison, can we start with you on this question, please? I, I have extensive thoughts on this matter. I think I've bored Progress Conference about them previously. But essentially, I think moving Parliament offers a really big opportunity, partly an economic opportunity, uh, but also like a cultural opportunity. I think that if we did choose to move Parliament out of Westminster, it would be, be a massive statement. Now, personally, obviously, as a constituency M- MP, my first job is to defend and fight for the interests of my constituents. So it should obviously go to Liverpool, where it would be the Scouse of Commons. But (laughs) it's a great joke. My Auntie Pat thought of that joke. It's a great joke. Modern Auntie Pat. This this feels a bit more like cutting your commute time rather than, you know, a kind of devolution matter. Connor, I don't know what you mean. (laughs) But actually... If it wasn't going to be Liverpool, even though in St George's Hall we've got the perfect building right opposite the station, if it wasn't going to be Liverpool, I think we should do like the capital of culture thing and get towns especially to bid for it. So you could have, say, Runcorn or Hartlepool or somewhere that was perhaps economically had had a bit of a hard time and this could like totally change the fortunes of one town in one go overnight it would be amazing why not just do it let's change the political capital of our country what could be more impressive roger as well as being a member of the house of lords you are a councillor in the north do you think that we should move parliament to rural cumbria um <laughs> no i think it should probably go to one of the big northern cities i think liverpool's an excellent idea um, um seriously i think that if we were to have a reformed house of lords which we may have someday i doubt if in my, my lifetime but someday it should be made up in my view of people from the nations and regions of britain it should have a different basis of representation to the constituents like the kind of secondary mandate thing that people yeah. had talked of before where you take people who are already elected in some capacity and, and make them further uh, in, the in secondary in, house and of in, in, indeed and it should be based out of london whether the Commons should be based out of London, I mean, the argument against it is the practical one of if you want to see greater scrutiny of government, one of the, the things that I re, are the select committees and, you know, getting lots of civil servants, it's going to be quite difficult if it's in Liverpool. Yeah, but there's no reason why the civil servants have to be based in London either. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it might be the whole thing. I mean, I'm personally in favour of it going to Birmingham for a period of time. It is the centre of the country. I think it'd be quite a symbolic thing that if it's going to be out of Westminster for a period of time, that's a pretty good place to put it. Another contender might be Leeds, and it might be one of the things that changes the balance of conversation, for example, for transport infrastructure from the north. HS2 is still get to get 
get beyond Britain's second city in terms of planning for it and, and legislating to make that happen. I imagine if the Parliament were in Leeds, you'd very quickly have HS2 extending up through Leeds to Scotland and you'd have the superhighway going from Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds and Hull built pretty damn quick. There was one proposal which I, I think was just from a PR company with someone who could do Photoshop, but that you could just put it outside of the Houses of Commons, basically on the River Thames for a period. <laughs> what, just I, like floating? Just floating on the Thames. I thought that was brilliant, especially <laughs> if you could unlatch it and then you could literally just move it round the country on the canals. I think yeah. that would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> House of Commons on a barge. Yeah, like when they were redoing Wembley and England moved around the country. Well, that was much better for you football. You see, I don't know why we stopped doing that. Because I think, actually... The England team need to go and see England fans all around the country. I think that's part of the problem with the England. W- the women's team still do it as well, don't they? I think yeah, they-, they do. The women's team played in Tranmere Rovers <laughs> at Prenton Park a couple of weeks ago, and it was really, really popular. But So we're all in favour then of moving it out of Parliament for some period of time. If you moved the House of Lords out of the present House of Lords, even the 100 yards, it would have a great benefit in persuading a lot of people to retire. (laughs) (laughs) Because it would no longer be the gentleman's club they know, and uh, it would have a dramatic effect on the membership. Would you retire, Roger? Uh, I have no present intention. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel that we've resolved nothing there. But do stick with us, because we'll be shortly talking about Article 15. If you like the Progressive Britain podcast, please do subscribe, rate the podcast and leave a review. We're really keen to hear your views, your feedback from the discussion today, from the podcast overall. Be part of our conversation. So go to on the iTunes account and leave that review. Contact us on Twitter or Instagram at Progress Online or leave a message on Facebook forward slash Progress Labour. You could pop us an email at office at progressonline.org.uk. Connor and I host a review show that comes out at 6am every Friday morning and we give out a prize to the best review on the iTunes profile. This week, you've got two tickets for James Graham's latest play, Labour of Love. So leave that review. Tell us what you think of the discussion, the podcast overall or the series so far and you could be in for winning two tickets to the best political comedy on In the West End, Labour of Love. Can Article 50 be stopped? Almost eight months have passed since the process was triggered and there's been very little development in Brexit negotiations, heightening the feeling that Britain and the European Union will not manage to reach a deal by the time we leave the EU in March 2019. But on Monday morning, Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer spoke at a progress event with the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales where he suggested that Article 50 is not as set in stone as you might believe. Article 50 has been triggered... Therefore, unless it's extended, it expires in March 2019 and we leave. Whether it's revocable is open to question. I think it it is. I think Lord Kerr, who drafted it, thinks it is. I think more lawyers, lawyers think it is than it isn't. That doesn't mean it's going to be revoked. It's got to be revoked before March 2019, not at some fanciful date in the 20s, before March 2019. And people who advocate this is going to happen have to think through how that process works between now and a year in March. I think politically that's very unlikely. 
Now, Roger, you've been a Downing Street Special Advisor on Europe and an advisor to the President of the EU Commission. What do you make of the idea that it is possible to essentially stop Article 50? Well, I'm sure it's legally possible. I've no doubt about that at all. I'm a member, actually, of the Select Committee in the Lords that looked at these European questions, and all the evidence we heard from legal experts, both in Britain and on the continent, is that legally Article 50 could be revoked. No problem at all. So the question is a, is a question of politics. It's not a question of law. In terms of the procedure, how would it happen? The Prime Minister would write a letter saying we no longer want to proceed. And you wouldn't need a new piece of legislation for that? Well, <laughs> you might need parliamentary approval for it in some form, but I would have thought that it's basically the Prime Minister writing to Donald Tusk saying, look, we can't continue with this. And I think the rate at which uh, the Brexit uh, negotiations are becoming chaotic, this is perhaps not the likeliest thing that's going to happen, but I think it's perfectly possible that in 2018 you could see a situation in which the Tory cabinet cannot agree on what its long-term goals are for the economic relationship with the European Union, and there is chaos. And in that chaos, I think it's possible Article 50 could be suspended. Alison, would you agree with that? Do you think it would be as simple as just the Prime Minister writing a letter or would there have to be a kind of more democratic accountability? Well, I think we do have to separate out the legal from the political, as Roger has said. Information that I have from uh, EU public law experts is just this, that it is legally revocable. The question is, do people want that? And I think that politically, I think a lot of Leave voters thought... Brexit would be straightforward. They wanted what they were offered, you know, dare I say it, 350 million quid a week for the NHS. I think a lot of Leave voters thought that our terms of trade would remain the same, but that, you know, there would be some consequence for our immigration policy that they wanted. I think that's where Leave voters were. And clearly none of those things have come to pass because leaving the trading arrangements of the European Union means that our terms of trade can't stay the same as they were before and nor can we you know, expect not to pay anything. Therefore, the money for the NHS argument is kind of knocked out of the water. So that means we're in quite uncertain times. If you're offered something in an election and it becomes clear that that thing is just not on the table in any way, shape or form, then... What mandate does the person have to, you know, prosecute an argument about what leave means? I think the Prime Minister sort of wasn't on the strongest of tickets before the general election. And then once the general election had happened and she herself had effectively lost her own personal mandate, I think it's really uncertain that that the government is now seeking to deliver. Do you think the EU would allow it, though? I think they would. I think they see the problem with this going forward, and I don't think they want Britain to be leaving still. They don't want a kind of hokey-pokey where we're saying we're coming out and then we're not saying, and then go back... Hokey-cokey. Oh, yeah, that would be what it was called. Thank you. (laughs) So I think that they clearly don't want long-term instability with the whole thing. But at the end of the day, one of the things we're witnessing as part of the negotiations is the EU, one, are quite good at negotiating on behalf of member states, and they've previously been doing that for us rather than against us when the kind of Chinese, the Indians, the Indonesians 
Brazilians, whatever, were sitting the other side of the table. So it's quite impressive to see them do it. But ultimately, they believe that the single market and the customs union is something that is precious, it's valuable. And if you want to be in it, you either have to pay to be part of it or give something in return. And it's kind of making the case for us. And clearly that union is stronger by having Britain in it in some significant way. And I think they would take that opportunity. They wouldn't just be a bit annoyed that we'd wasted a year kind of faffing about doing nothing. No, I don't think they want no deal. Yeah, I think that the nations of the continent want a good relationship with the United Kingdom. I think Richard's right that they're not going to let us have our cake and eat it, but they want a good relationship with Britain. It's very important uh, geopolitically to France and Germany. So I think they would fight quite hard to prevent a, a breakdown. But I think there's a real prospect of a breakdown, not because of the intransigence of, of Europe, uh, but because of the dysfunctionality of the the Tory cabinet and the inability of the Conservatives to agree on a way forward. And, and do you think that's because they just fundamentally want different things out of this process? So yes. Philip Hammond yes. just wants a different thing. I think there is a fundamental divide between what the Prime Minister said in her Florence speech, which she wants uh, to be out of the single market, which I think is wrong, you know, but she wants to be out of the single market, but be very aligned in regulatory terms closely with the European Union. I think there's a great difference between that position, and I'm sure Philip Hammond agrees with her on that, and the position of Gove and Johnson and Fox, who basically see Brexit as a great opportunity opportunity to create a sort of, you know, a global Britain that's deregulated, low tax, a completely different kind of political economy model to the one we have. I think that's a very fundamental split in the Tory party. I think it's as big as the split in, on the Corn Laws in 1845 and on tariff reform in the beginning of the 20th century. And I think we could see it lead to a total impasse uh, in these negotiations in 2018. And that that's when the question of whether you go ahead with Article 50 comes up, I think. Is this why people have been speculating about cabinet sackings and all of that kind of thing? Because at some point, something has to give. Maybe the Prime Minister decides to make some sacrificial yes. sackings and then tries to... Well, there's a very well-sourced report that she has put off any discussion of the long-term economic relationship until the new year, and that can only be because she's afraid of people walking out. On no deal, I understand what uh, Tories who kind of talk up the prospect of no deal think that they're doing. They think that if you don't have the kind of that possibility in place, then the EU can offer you anything and you have to take it. So they've been talking it up for that reason. But recently, it feels that there has been a slight change in tone and that actually some of them are almost welcoming of the idea of WHO rules post-Brexit. Do you think they're being serious there or do you think this is actually part of a ploy just to make people believe that that is what they want? Do you want a Eurobore answer? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I think, look... Uh, is there a quick version of a Eurobore? The, the Eurobore <laughs> answer is that, you, of course, what you're, when you're talking about no deal is that there are actually three separate deals under negotiation here. One is the withdrawal agreement. Another is the nature of a transition or implementation period, right? And the third is the trade deal that defines the long-term economic relationship. So you've got to see it logically as three separate things. I think that 
anyone who thinks we should walk away from the withdrawal agreement without a deal is nuts. I mean, Peter Mandelson said that, you know, walking away from it is like, uh, OK, you've lost the argument, so you shoot your brains out. Because the consequences would be so catastrophic of a breakdown mm. there. But I think what, what the Gove and Johnson and co may be aiming for is that for there to be no deal on the long-term economic relationship. That's what I think. I would say this is not a new thing. I have sat across the Commons Chamber from John Redwood for years now, and I have heard him talk about the fact that, you know, we would be far better outside the European Union trading on WTO terms, that we would be better off because we would basically be better at free trade than the EU. That's his argument. Now, he's just wrong about that, the sort of economic history of countries that just sort of open themselves up to radical free trade is that it by and large doesn't go very well. So he may feel philosophically committed to it, but he's just wrong about it. I think that some of the people currently in the cabinet have been captured by this argument. Yeah, that Ali's quite right about that. You know, it, how, how can it make sense to abandon free trade for 40% of your present exports, which is what we're doing by pulling out of the single market. We're abandoning free trade for 40%, 45% of the trading we're doing for the very uncertain prospect of deals which are probably on very disadvantageous terms with people like the United States. As Keir Starmer said today, you know, the negotiation with the United States is they say, these are the terms you sign there. But this is the truth about free trade, right? That in all of the many, many years that people have been arguing about free trade, it is clear that untrammeled, unregulated free markets are not equal societies in which everybody has a chance to succeed, which is why the EU in some ways is both free trade and protectionist, because its rules protect workers' rights, its rules protect our environment, its rules protect what you can and can't do when you employ somebody. So we're leaving this environment where barriers to trade between countries in Europe are removed, but also, you know, it's far from perfect, far from perfect, but also both individuals, communities, and our sort of collective environmental rights are protected and we'd be leaving that protection and that protected environment for a world where we get dictated to by China and the US. And there will be absolutely no protection for individuals. And Lisa Nandy actually wrote an excellent article in the Financial Times over the weekend saying that, you know, she represents Wigan, where people, a lot of people voted leave, and that people are entitled to the dignity that they voted for. They want respect. They want a chance. And whilst clearly they didn't believe that the EU was the vehicle to deliver it for them, we have to find a way to keep the protections of people's jobs and rights and public services and all of the things that, you know, make life decent and good. That's what we're talking about. And simple free trade will never do that. It never has. So, Alison, both you and Roger have uh, mentioned the kind of theoretical versus the political arguments around this. I think that plays a lot into the next question, uh, which is whether there should be a referendum on the terms of a Brexit deal. First of all, let's just have a listen to what Keir Starmer said about that on Monday morning. 
I also think that um, a refer second referendum before March 2019 is pretty unlikely. You need legislation for a referendum. You need a consensus in Parliament to get that legislation through. You need the Electoral Commission to be set up and seized of the matter. You need to agree a date. You need to agree rules. You need to identify campaigns on both sides. And you've got to have a question. Um, and uh, if the question is to be, do we stay in or do we go with whatever the uh, negotiated outcome is, we don't know what that is. And we're not going to know until late in the day. And it might be transitional arrangements. Who thinks it's a good idea to go back to the country on um, stay-in or transitional arrangements, particularly if the transitional arrangements are the status quo? I mean, that's not, I would have thought, a referendum that's necessarily set up for a clear, easy and definitive answer. So, Richard, if I can come to you first on this one. Keir said that uh, a referendum before March 2019 on the terms of the Brexit deal would be unlikely. What, what do you make of that? Do you agree with him? He goes through all the, as you've just heard, all the kind of reasons why it would be incredibly administratively difficult. But I think that's why it is linked to his comments on essentially uh, revoking Article 50, because you might get to a point where you wanted to have a referendum on the terms, and therefore you might need to buy the time to essentially stop where we are, take stock of the various deals, the three that Roger was just telling us that, and then put them to the public. But the idea this is going to be dealt with quickly or simply, I think, is one a point well made by him. But I don't think that those administrative challenges should be a reason why the British public don't get to make a final say on what we actually are going for that long-term relationship with the EU. And I think perhaps a bigger challenge here, certainly for those of us who would like a close relationship with the European Union, is not the logical challenges of how you set up a referendum 18 months from now, which I think we all know is something that is possible to do. But in, there was some polling that came out this weekend that said that in the short term, people think Brexit will likely be bad. They think that by 39% to 34%. But in the long term, in 10 to 20 years, they think it will be good by 51% to 25%. That was some opinion polling that came out over the f past few days. And so actually, it feels like people are prepared to take a bit of a hit because of Brexit in the short term, because they think in the long term it will be good for the country. Just to go back to the referendum for a second, I think that for all the reasons that are obvious, actually, I think another referendum would be difficult because referenda are tricky. I mean, this is just a massive, thumping, great mistake that David Cameron made. They're unpredictable and, you know, clearly... If we'd had some sort of manifestos or something, commitments that people could be could have been held to in the EU referendum, perhaps we wouldn't be in the situation that we are in now. And I would loathe going back to that scenario. What was the Clem Attlee quote on referendums? Device of dictators and demagogues. <laughs> and in David Cameron's case, dunces. <laughs> so, so actually, what I think is more likely is that our future relationship with Europe becomes the terms of debate in a general election. I don't know whether there'll be a general election anytime soon. Obviously, it, it would be nice not to have a Tory government, but I think that will mean that parties have to think very carefully about their offer to the public. They have to write their manifesto in a way that means that our relationship with Europe is placed within the proper context, as it ought to be. So you have to think about whether or not you want to be in the single market in the terms of what does that do for tax revenues therefore what can we afford in terms of our public services and that's the 
right way, I think, to think about the European debate. It's not it's not one issue that's off to the side. It's an underpinning matter that that will determine what our future looks like. And, you know, I, I hadn't seen that polling about people thinking it could be good in the long term. Personally, I would think that, you know, most British people are weirdly, you know, quite optimistic in the, in a sense of like, you know, we worry about whether it might rain, but we've got faith in our country. And I think we think that we'll be able to pull through. And I think that's well-placed faith as well. So I don't feel like we'll be completely doomed by this if we get it right. I think what's happening at the moment is the chaos of Theresa May, because in her own party, there is an irresolvable dispute. But essentially, on the referendum question, you think unlikely and not necessarily desirable either. I wouldn't rule it out, but that's just because, like, if it became obvious that there was, like, public clamour for this, mm. then, you know, as, as a Democrat and somebody who, by and large, would think we should listen to the public, I wouldn't completely rule it out. But speaking for myself, I would not want to be back in that situation where people were glibly making commitments to things that they had no intention or no firm commitment to the public about how they would deliver, which is what happened last time. In the House of Lords, I broke the party whip to vote for a second referendum. Was this uh, the speech where you became an internet viral sensation? No, no it wasn't, actually. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but I did vote for a second referendum on the Article 50 bill because it seemed to me that the government was not offering a proper parliamentary vote on the deal. So if they weren't prepared to have a proper parliamentary vote, then, uh, you know, I, I think that if it's a choice between a breakdown, a complete breakdown, a no deal option, and the status quo of staying in the European Union, I think the people should have the right to decide on that, because that isn't what they voted for. And they were they were told that there was going to be uh, a wonderful nirvana of on Brexit, and that a free trade deal with our European partners would be the easiest thing in the world to negotiate. If if in fact it results in you know lorry queues uh, from from Dover to the M25 and from real disruption, if it is going to result in real economic disruption, I think people should have a choice on that. Yes. Richard, we don't have much time left, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts were about whether or not there should be a referendum and how you might be able to engineer one happening, if so. I am always convinced that the public will be right kind of on these things eventually. And I think the opportunity to put the case to the public is one I don't normally recoil from. But having been through the experience of various referendums now, they rarely settle the question in front of you. Um, and they're really about the question that's on the ballot paper. I think what looking back over this is that the Prime Minister should be treated pretty harshly by the history books that she triggered Article 50, not knowing, as Roger said, what their long-term objectives were, having any sense of how she might corral her cabinet to this kind of position, and has left Britain pretty diminished from it. And I think the opportunity to save people from that is one that will be in the British public's hands. It most likely will be through a general election, but I don't think you could rule out a referendum. I think that's all we've got time for there, so we'll have to wrap up this great conversation. And thank you so much, Roger, for coming and joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. 
Every Tuesday, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's follow-up extra show. This week, it's what did Tim Farron, Margaret Hodge, John O'Farrell and UKIP MEP Gerard Batten have in common? Thanks again to Joe Oliver for help with this question. Send your answers to at Progress Online or at Con of Hope on Twitter or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a coveted Progress mug. Me and Richard will be back on Friday to respond to your comments and dish out some prizes. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with me, Alison McGovern, with Richard Angel and Connor Pope. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. 